We're beginning Exodus. I'm going to see if we can't make it through two chapters. Um, it's, uh, there's some, some good stuff in there for us. But generally speaking, the context of um, Exodus, and really the context for the whole Bible, including the Old and New Testament, is the book of Genesis. Uh, because in Genesis, we read and we saw how the seed who is the Messiah, who is Jesus Christ, was prophesied to Eve and uh, promised to Eve. And then Abraham and the covenant and the seed. In Genesis 12, 1 through 7, it starts uh, in Ur of the Chaldees when uh, God calls Abram out of his country and out from his family and out from his father's house to a land he will show him. And then Genesis 13, after Lot chooses the rich, lush plains of Sodom and Gomorrah, that area before the, the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, um, he says to Abraham, go look to the north, to the south, to the east and the west, as far as you can see in this land I'm going to give to you and to your descendants. And this being, again, that covenant that he made to him, had the land. First he tells them, though, that they'll be strangers in the land, uh, that's not their own that for 400 years. But he also promises there that after 400 years, and he calls it four generations, they will return to the land. Um, and he even sets the boundaries. He says as far as the great river in Egypt all the way to the, the Euphrates and that whole stretch. And you ever think about that, you look on a map, well, that's Jordan, Iraq, half of Iraq. Uh, the Sinai Peninsula and, and half of Egypt, you know, or uh, the Sinai and that part of Egypt uh, where the Nile goes through, that's a lot bigger than what they, except under Solomon for a spell, that's a lot more than, uh, than they ever actually took. And can you imagine if that would have been the land they gave them back in 1948 when, when Israel was given the land again that they have now uh, by the U.N.? But 400 years, they would then return to the land that God promised, and he sets those boundaries. But notice in, uh, or remember back in, I guess I wasn't going to have you turn there, but uh, Genesis 15, he talks about um, God appears to Abraham with a great smoke and a burning torch as he passes between the, the pieces of animals that he had laid out for a sacrifice, and he put Abraham in a deep sleep. And he passes through him in this great, um, smoke and a burning torch. Um, in 26, Genesis 26, Isaac goes to Gerar of the Philistines when there was a famine. And God tells him he'll be with him. He blesses him. He'll multiply his descendants. And uh, he also says to Isaac, in your seed, all the nations will be blessed. All the nations of the earth. And then in 28, he says the same to Jacob at Bethel. Remember in the dream where he was laid his head on a rock, has a dream, and sees heaven open up and a ladder going up and angels ascending and descending. But the Lord stood at the top of that ladder and he uh, said to him, uh, I will give this land to you and your descendants. In your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And again, he confirms with him, I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go. Well, here they are in Egypt, and he is with them. He says, I will bring you back to this land, and I will not leave you until I have done what I have said I would do. And it's such an encouragement to us, too, because he is not going to leave us until he brings us home to be with him, and uh, we go to be with him. And I pray soon, and boy, without it's hard not to get sidetracked with all the news this week. I think Mary's going to do a prophecy update one of these weeks, if not Sunday, maybe a week from then. Um, there's a lot happening right now that is so much like the days of the Tower of Babel when the whole earth was joined together. Ever since this pandemic where the few people in power are telling the entire world what to do, every nation, every people are being told to wear the masks and get the vax and all that. Well, all the masks and vaxes aside, the fact that the whole world is now being brought under this umbrella is the first time since the Tower of Babel. All of civilization, all of uh, humanity is being brought under this. And that's, that's right out of the book of Revelation. That's right out of the prophecy when the Antichrist will have that ability. And that's, and that's three and a half years into the tribulation, and here we haven't even been raptured yet. 
and uh, it's like ready to go. And Mary's going to do an update on some things, you know, the IDs that they have out there, and the, I don't want to give it away or I'm going to get beat up. <laughs> so uh, in my sleep, otherwise, you know, I would be all right. But <laughs> uh, so Jacob at Bethel. Then Joseph, in Genesis 37 through 49, is sold into Egypt. God is with him as he was with Jacob, and he promised he would be. And um, he finds favor, eventually becomes the most powerful man in Egypt, save Pharaoh himself. And then in Genesis 50, um, you know, he tells his brothers, you know, you meant this for evil, but God meant this for good. God was with him, he knew it, now God is with these uh, Israelites. So as we bring the context you know, Joseph is embalmed, dies and is embalmed. And we read last time uh, we were here in um, Hebrews 11.22 that that's what Paul chose in Hebrews to use as a teaching example of faith. Joseph had the faith to know that they were going to be brought back to that land some 400 years later. And so he says to his brother, uh, to the, all the Israelites at the time, make sure my bones go back. You know, with you when you go back. And that's the example he gives in Hebrews 11.22. So the children of Israel will come back. They will inherit the promised land. And it's just like the example for us uh, to remember and to remind others that we will be raised up. We will be brought back to the promised land. And that promised land being God's eternal kingdom in the grace and the mercy and love of Jesus Christ. And uh, what a joy and a comfort and a peace that's, that's to us. You know, how do, we, how do we comprehend it? Well, you know, we may not be able to know exactly what heaven's going to be like, but we can know that this earth is a pup tent at best, and that's going to be a mansion that he prepared for us. And so whatever we think is glorious in this world, the most, you know, pristine beach with the best, you know, uh, clearest water and the mountains in the background... That's not anything compared with the kingdom to come. And um, so anyway, uh, Exodus 1, and I'm going to go ahead and read all the way through to the end of chapter 2. And so read along and, and we'll see what, what we can come back to here. Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man and his household came with Jacob. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, all those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply and happen in the event of war, that they also join our enemies and fight against us. So go up and out of the land. Therefore, let us, uh, let's, uh, therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were the dread of the children uh, of Israel. Or they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage. In mortar and in brick and in all manner of service in the field. And all their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. And when the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the one was Shiprah, and the name of the other was Puah, and he said, When you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women, and you see them on the birth stools, if it's a son, then you shall kill him, and if it's a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. And so the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives can come to them. 
Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. So it was that because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast in the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. And a man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi. So the women conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was beautiful, a beautiful child, she hid him three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him and daubed it with asphalt and pitch and put the child in and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And, she, and his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe in the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. And so she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. And then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. The child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, Because I drew him out of the water. And now came to pass in those days when Moses had grown, that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. And so he looked this way and that, and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out to the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting, and he said to the one who did wrong, Why are you striking your companion? And he said, Who made you prince and judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed that Egyptian? And so Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard the matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water, and they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. And then the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. And when they came to Ruel, their father, he said, How is it that you have come so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds, and he also drew enough water for us to water the flock. And so he said to his daughter, And where is he? Why is it that you left the man? Call him, that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to live with the man, and he gave Zipporah, Zipporah, his daughter, to Moses. And she bore him a son. He called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. And now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died, and then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage. They cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. And so God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. So back in verse 1 through 7, of chapter 1, 70 came out of Egypt, or came down to Egypt from Canaan with Jacob. Um, they were fruitful and multiplied, it says, and they filled the land. Now, we read earlier, uh, or talked about earlier, 400 years, 400 or four generations. Now, when it says four generations, that's some kind of math and some kind of uh, fruitful <laughs> when you think of it. For in just four generations to go from uh, 70 people to what many would say is between one to two million that came out of Egypt and went into uh, the promised land or, or went out and started heading for the promised land. And there's a lot more to that as we go. Um, and we'll look into that more. But let's just say it was a million. Well, they certainly were fruitful. They certainly were hardy. And uh, certainly were bearing children and being fruitful and multiplying in that land to the point where now the Egyptians are, are full of fear. They've grown mighty, it says. And that having to do with power, that having to do with the ability to, to take care of themselves. 
And uh, so here these Egyptians are, 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 they're threatened by that. They're obviously afraid. What if some of our enemies come and attack us and these, all these Hebrews, all these you know, uh, Israelites decide to go with these enemies of ours? So in, um, it's, in verses 8 through 14, there's this Pharaoh that did not know Joseph. He sees how mighty the Israelites became. And he feared that they would side with their enemies, and so he puts them in slavery, puts them in hard labor. But that even causes them to grow even stronger. And that's kind of just a quick little sidebar. You know, the church thrives under persecution. Uh, You go to countries where you suffer for your faith. uh, To declare it among your family will have you immediately ostracized, and that's not just a Thanksgiving when you want to talk politics or religion and your family chews you out. No, this is where you are no longer, you, it, when, when someone would get saved in India, the family would immediately ostracize and put them away. If a Jew would become a Christian back in the time of Jesus, they would, you're anathema to me, you're nothing to me, uh, because they they've went after the, the Lord and, and forsook their Jewish traditions. Um, we are living in the tail end of uh, a waning Christian, Judeo-Christian country. And it's really hard to watch. It is. And um, here we are just watching it happen right before our eyes. And at the same time, we see these things, and like I talked about Mary's update, that let us know the fact that we are so close. Now, the rest of the world didn't have the Constitution and rights and, and all these things that we've been enjoying. And churches on every other corner, you know, in most cities. And, and so it's a little different for the rest of the world and it maybe makes a little more sense when it comes to persecution and suffering and all. And for us, the biggest persecution is oftentimes just being, having such a struggle to get through our denominational, so quote-unquote Christian, but just ritualistic and just a... a uh, um, Trusting in their religion and their sacraments and in, in their traditions rather than, than being born again and coming to the Lord as broken sinners, realizing they need a Savior and not just a church or a religion. And it's so important. Even for us, many times people come to uh, a church, a, denom- a non-denom like we are, or something like that, and, and they just are, are here to pick up where they left off in a different kind of church where maybe they like the people different or something. But sooner or later, you have to come to a point when you're letting the Word of God get into your heart, if in fact you do, that you need to be born again. There needs to be a repentance. There needs to be a new life. You can't live the Christian life in reality without the Holy Spirit. And you can't have the Holy Spirit unless you ask for Him. And you can't ask for Him unless you know you need Him. And so it's so important that uh, we even tell this Christian country that we live in that is waning away in front of all of our eyes how to get saved, how to be born again, and how to draw close to the Lord, and how to have a sincere, genuine faith that changes their life. That's seven days a week and not just Sundays and not just maybe Christmas and Easter. It's so important even in the country that we live in. And there will be suffering. There will be persecution. So uh, Pharaoh now realizes that, well, we've got to go try and get at the, the problem here, and these women are hardy, and so we've got to do something about it. So she, he goes and talks to the midwives. Now, I imagine there were many midwives. Two of them are probably the ones that were in charge here. Um, and, uh, and so Zifra and, and Pua, and they say, well, you know, the, these Hebrew women are hardy. So he says, well, you have to kill the males. And so they didn't because they feared God. Now, there comes a time, this brings up just a little sidebar, and that is civil disobedience. Uh, you might be told to do something that the Lord is, uh, you know, by your king, if you will, by the government, if you will, by the Pharaoh. You're being told by the authority in the land that you need to start doing this thing. Well, if you fear God, you may have to say, uh, it's not working. We can't do that. I mean, they literally lied to Pharaoh and says, you know, we, we get there and they're already having their kids. And so is it, is it uh, you know, and the Lord blessed them for it. He said to them, you know, we, we uh, or the Lord dealt with them uh, very generously. Was it say he, uh, 
hid them, or he blessed their households. He uh, uh, dealt well with them, it says, uh, with the midwives. And again, even after all of this, the Israelites continue to grow even stronger and even mightier. But the thing of it is, they feared God. You know, do, do to me what you will. And I'm not saying in my own strength I can face that kind of thing, but I'm not going to stop saying what the Bible says about homosexuality or about uh, uh, adultery or about fornication or about uh, ab- addictions, um, abuses, and things like that. You know, the, the Bible tells you exactly what's true about every single thing in society today. And if you're going to preach it, you're going to suffer for it. And there's a lot of churches out there that get along just fine, hanging the rainbow flag in their, in, in their windows, and it's got absolutely nothing to do with the flood and God's promise to never send water again. It's got everything to do with pride. And what about pride? I mean, that's the, that's the, the sin of Satan. That's the thing that caused him to fall from heaven is pride. And, and this is supposedly what the churches are saying, you need to be proud. And yet the very thing that they're so proud of is the thing that they should be so ashamed of that they know they need a Savior. And I regress here, I guess. Um, so that brings us to chapter 2, Moses. In verses 1 through 4, Moses is born and hidden in a basket on the water. Now Goshen, um, this probably wouldn't be a bad time to, to throw up the uh, map that I, I gave Thomas. And uh, you can see on the map, uh, it's going to show you the trek that Moses took. But if you look over to the, the left side of it, right along from that area, it says Goshen. And that's kind of close to the river. And that's kind of close to a very fertile area, but it's where all, you know, all the, the uh, Israelites had their flocks of sheep, and there was plenty for them. But it's also where Pharaoh's daughter, and I imagine most of Egypt, would go to get water, to bathe, to do all those things and all. And just as weird as that sounds, when they go to get water, it's because they dig back from the, the banks a little ways and let it get through the sand and all that. So you can bathe in the river and not have to worry about that, but... Um, I think of these things. I, maybe that wasn't <laughs> something you thought of. but um, So here she comes down, and she, it's already been an edict that all the male children need to be slain. Well, here's one uh, uh, that has gotten away, and it's in, a, in the bulrushes along the shore of the water. And so Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses and takes him as her own. You know, gives the, uh, it turns out that it's Moses' mother, actual mother, who the, the handmaiden of Pharaoh's daughter goes and gets. And so she gets to, to raise her infant son until he's old enough to give back to Pharaoh's daughter. And that's such a, I'm sure that was a huge blessing to her. But um, if you'd like, you can turn with me to Acts 7, 15 through 29. We have a couple of passages in the New Testament that uh, give us a whole lot more detail about this chapter and uh, this section. Now, if you remember, while we're turning to Acts 7, um, Acts 7 is where Stephan, who is one of the, the deacons in the church, um, filled with the Holy Spirit, he was able to, to share his faith with, with clarity he was wise in the word of God. He was able to talk to these Pharisees. And so the Jewish leaders and the Jews were gathering around him and he was giving a testimony of why Jesus was the Messiah. And he's going through their history as you would if you're talking to the Jews to be able to share the gospel. You'd want to be able to explain to them the gospel from the Old Testament that they would understand. And so he's going through it. And in verse 15... So Jacob, he's saying to them, Jacob went down to Egypt and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph And this man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. And this time Moses was born and was uh, well-pleasing to God. And he was brought up in his father's house for three months. 
But when he was sent out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. And notice, and now he was 40 years old, and it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren, notice this, he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand. But they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to the two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, your brethren, why wrong you one another? But he who did this, uh, his neighbor wrong, pushed him away and said, Who? made you ruler and a judge over us. Uh, Do you want to kill me as you did that Egyptian yesterday? And then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. So, first of all, in verse 22, he was learned in all the wisdom of Egypt, and he would have been told about Joseph and the history of the Hebrews. He's raised in in, uh, Pharaoh's household. You know, the daughter of Pharaoh raised him, but they're dwelling with all of these Israelites, all of these Hebrews. There's a story of how they got here. And he knew that story. Uh, he was mighty in words and deeds. And during this time, we, talk, uh, we read how the Hebrew slaves were building these massive supply cities, um, uh, Pytham and, and uh, Ramses. And he would have known also that there was great fear among his Egyptian brethren and in the household that uh, there was a great fear of these slaves. And he would have known also that there was this mandate to kill the newborn males. And if he was mighty in Egypt, then he would have been involved with these huge projects and, and he would have been able to see all of these Israelites and all the manpower and the, the, the might that they were. But then it says in verse 23, it says it came into his heart to visit his brethren. These are the children of Israel. We're going to go to... Uh, to Hebrews 11 in a minute, but somewhere along the line, um, it came into his heart and he realized, or he was known all along if Pharaoh's daughter had raised him with this knowledge that he indeed was a Hebrew. He indeed was, if you will, adopted and all. And whether or not Pharaoh knew it, it came real clear real soon. Uh, but here he, it comes into his heart that he would visit his brethren and uh, and now this, this knowledge of who he is and who his brother and I are is confirmed. He was raised in those palaces of Pharaoh. He was the grandson of the Pharaoh at the time. And um, until, you know, this comes to light and that his grandfather seeks to kill him and he has to flee. And now that's the same Pharaoh that dies at the end of Exodus chapter 2. So the Pharaoh that follows would have known him well because he was raised by his sister. So he would been basically, Moses was this guy's nephew, and that's the Pharaoh that came to power now after this. And then as we go on through Exodus, he's the one that you'll be dealing with. And half of you probably have not seen the movie, but the other half has, you know, and that's Yul Brenner, just in case you're wondering. Um, but <laughs> these days it's funny, because, you know, what do they call those... Uh, um, you know, cultural references or whatever, things like that. These days, half the congregation or half the people don't even know that one. But if you haven't seen it, it's, uh, what's it? The Ten Commandments. (laughs) And yes, so that's the one, if you probably can find it on um, one of your movie, uh, you know, applications there. So, So going back to Exodus, verses 11 through 15, um, in chapter 2, we see how it came to pass that he went and he grew and he went out to his brother and looked at their burdens. And he saw the Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way, that way, and he saw no one. Uh, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Went out the second day. Behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to the one, who did the wrong? Why are you striking your companion? They said, who, who made you prince and judge over us? And uh, you can intend to kill me like you did the Egyptian. So Moses fears because um, he knows that this thing is going to become known. You know, I, I don't know how to put that in a, in a picture for you, but the idea is somehow these guys didn't have any respect for 
somebody who was raised in Pharaoh's household. So I think it was well known, possibly, that even though he was, you know, the land was filled with, with the Israelites, it may have been well known that even though he was being raised by Pharaoh's daughter, he was a Hebrew. He was also a Jew. He was also an Israelite and all. But then um, when Pharaoh heard this matter, he sought to kill Moses. Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. Where, where was it? Um, oh, when we read it in, in Acts, um, where it says that, uh, you know, he, uh, seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him. This would be uh, Acts 27, 24. Um, and then in 25 it says, For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. It's actually saying here, Stephen's saying to add to this story, uh, that in fact Moses thought it that he might be from his position in Pharaoh's household, that he might be one that would fulfill the prophecy. He had that faith to know that indeed they were going to go back to that promised land. And he had that insight. Let's, uh, Moses goes out, sees his brother. Um, now, when he takes off after Pharaoh seeks to kill him, he takes off, and we saw that map. He goes all the way across the Sinai Peninsula, all the way across the other side of that, uh, was that the Gulf of, um, it's not the Gulf of Akba. But anyways, it's on that side over towards what's nowadays uh, uh, Saudi Arabia. But it's uh, close to two to 300 miles, 250 to 300 miles that he went to get all the way across there on foot to get to the land of Midian. So back in Hebrews, if you want to turn there to Hebrews chapter 11, there's a little more insight. So here's Moses. He, he's wondering, according to Stephen, how these guys don't seem to know that, that they're going to be delivered, as God said they were going to be delivered. And in Hebrews chapter 11, just 23 through 27, it says, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents, because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. Well, now we have some more people who feared God more than they were afraid of the king's command, just like the midwives. And it says, by faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. And by faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him as who is invisible, as seeing him, seeing God. By faith he kept the Passover, and so forth. We'd stop at 27. So, a few things by faith. He comes of age. He knows he is an Israelite, based on Hebrews. He's 40 years old, we saw back in, in Acts. And he refused to be called an Egyptian. And this gets around. So maybe they're just dealing with this family business in Pharaoh's household, and you know Pharaoh's just figuring his daughter's going to deal with it, whatever. But it's becoming real, where Moses now goes out. He sees his brethren suffering. And some of the brethren, uh, he, he, he kills this Egyptian for beating one of his brethren. And um, so he refuses to be called an Egyptian. He chooses instead, verse 25, to suffer with his true brethren, to stay in, uh, rather than to stay in the house of royalty, with all the pleasures and all the power to enjoy. That would have been his as Pharaoh's son, uh, grandson. Um, now, he had all this wisdom and knowledge of, in Egypt. He was educated. and says he was mighty in word and deed, but forsook that prestige. Um, in verse 26, by faith he esteemed the reproach of Christ. How did Moses, back in the land of Egypt, forsake or esteem the reproach of Christ um, greater than all that riches and wealth that he would have in Egypt. And so, with, again, we talked earlier, with all the wisdom, he, he knew the history of the children of Israel, his brothers and his forefathers. Therefore, he knew the covenant. 
He knew the testimony of what happened in the Garden of Eden when God promised Eve the seed will crush Satan's head. Eve was going to have a seed, was going to have a descendant, uh, uh, was going to have that promise fulfilled. Well, God, once again, when he makes that covenant with Abraham, it's the seed, and your seed will bless all the families of earth. They'll bless all the nations of earth, he says to Jacob, and, and he confirms it again with Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And um, so the reproach to join the Israelites is because even though they were now slaves in Egypt, they had a covenant. You know, Abraham, these are Abraham's descendants, and the, the covenant was Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their descendants. They had this covenant, and Moses knew it, and he rejected being an Egyptian so that he could join himself, even though they're in slavery, even though it's a reproach, and he chooses to go through the desert with these people instead of sit in the posh luxury of the palaces of Egypt. And it's, um, you know, this, this covenant was not just a promise of the land. And he knew it because it says here in Hebrews, he suffered the reproach and esteemed, I should say, the reproach of Christ. And, you know, when they read, uh, when Paul wrote Hebrews, you know, he's talking of all these things in Hebrews chapter 11, you know, he ends it up when the last uh, verse 39 and 40, all these things, uh, all these having obtained a good testimony through faith did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us that they should not be made perfect apart for us. It was, it was the Christ who was going to come and redeem the world back. It was going to be through the seed of Abraham as he had promised that would bless all the families of the earth. That's Jesus. Blessing to you and me, bunch of Gentiles, you know. Um, so if um, anything, we know that indeed he did choose. And it's funny how he says um, the reproach to join the Israelites because even though they were now slaves, they had a covenant, and he calls it the invisible God or with invisible God as a title. And for that, there was no need for him to fear Pharaoh um, in verse uh, uh, so he did, you know, choosing rather to suffer afflictions and uh, with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater than the riches than the treasures in Egypt and all. So, oh, in verse 27, by faith, in, in Hebrews 11, by faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. And so here he is, he's believing in an invisible God, and we talk about that here. You know, I've never seen or touched or heard physically, you know, the God that we worship. You know, but he did. He was seen and heard and touched by the disciples when Jesus came. And when he came, you know, First John 1 through 4, whom they handled, whom they saw, whom they heard, you know, this is who they're talking about. And it's their testimony that we believe. And then we believe in the Holy Spirit bears witness in us. And we talk about that here a lot. But that is the only true God, the only true gospel that the Son of God came. And when he came back then, 2000, some 2,000 plus years ago and died on the cross, those witnesses, the, the apostles, the disciples, it's their testimony that we're reading here. And it's their testimony that we believe. And the Holy Spirit's alive and gives life because his word is alive and gives life. So back to Genesis. I'm sorry, back to Exodus. I'll probably do that a few more times in the weeks ahead. But back to uh, Exodus uh, 2, verses 16 through 20, 22. Zipporah bears Moses a son, calls him Gershom. Now, it's interesting, Abraham's servant found Rebekah at a well for Isaac, found a, a wife for Isaac, Rebekah. Jacob found Rachel at a well. And now I hear Moses runs and hangs out by a well, and lo and behold, up come these daughters of this priest of, of Midian and in a foreign land, and you know, so he... he uh, goes to stay with, you know, he's the kind of guy. He, he was the kind of guy that 
defended his brethren against the Egyptian shoulder and killed that soldier. He gets out there and tries to make peace between his two brothers. He gets to this place and see these shepherds coming and trying to uh, you know, bust up these, these gals who came to water their sheep and to gather water and chase them off. And he sticks up for them and defends them and allows them and, and gathers water, gets the water for them and all. And so this is the kind of guy Moses is. He's, he think of the possibilities of somebody who grows up with the silver spoon type of thing where he grows up in Pharaoh's household and palaces and by the, his daughter, nonetheless, you know, you'd think he'd be spoiled rotten and wouldn't lift a finger. Not Moses. He feared God. He knew who he was and he was not afraid to get his hands dirty, to jump in and get in the fray to make peace if he had to or to, to, to defend the defenseless. And now here he is at the well uh, with the daughters of the Midian priest. Now, it says his name is Ruel, but his name is actually the same guy. His name is Jethro. And you'll remember Jethro as we go through some more of the book of Exodus. He was a wise counsel to Moses as we go through uh, the, the rest of the, f- the first five books of uh, Moses, the, of the Bible, the Pentateuch. Um, and then it says in verses 23 to 25, he'd been sojourning these many days since Moses had fled and traveled to Midian and he found a wife. Now he was 40 years old, it says, when he fled. And so this is uh, like 40 years later and Pharaoh now dies and the Israelites are still in bondage. Now, if you're looking at verses 23, 24, and 25, you notice a few things. It gets progressively worse. They're groaning. It's not like it was. Earlier, they made their labor hard, and they said, now you've got to go make your own bricks. Now you've got to go. They gave them jobs. It might have been hard. It might have been grievous. But now it says they groan in pain or grief. Uh, they sigh, it says. It's become truly unbearable. It's not just whining and complaining. It's true, grievous suffering. And they cried out. And it's a, it's a crying out. They gathered together as a company uh, to c- proclaim, to call out, to cry out for help. It's, it's not that it was just a few here and there that were working really hard and, and all. The whole collective uh, nation of the Israelites in slavery was crying out together, and they're crying out to God. And their cry for help in bondage says it rose up to God, and they directed it to God, and they directed it to God because it was their bondage. It was because of their bondage. Now the application for us, really, um, if you want, you can turn to Romans 15, and, and we'll then quick go over to First Corinthians 10, 11, just for some simple verses that apply and put all this in context for us because this really right here when they cried out to God is when the exodus where the exodus begins Um, there are so many parallels between the history of the Israelites and the life of the believer you know we have and if you look at Romans 15 um, he says outright Verses 3 and 4. Um, Let us each of us please his neighbor for his good and edification. Uh, for even Christ did not please himself, but as it was written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. I wonder if that's the passage I wanted. That's bearing one another's burdens. Um, maybe I was thinking of the one in Corinthians. Verses 10, verse 11. Okay, I guess it's the same as what we talked about in Hebrews. I'm sorry, go ahead to 1 Corinthians 11. You know, in fact, it does apply, and I'm, I guess I will talk about it in a minute for Romans. But uh, verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, it says, All these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. In other words... And what the context here there's in First Corinthians 10 is the examples from the Old Testament that Paul is using of how they would, they would stumble and fall. They would harden their hearts. They would stop following the Lord as they go through the desert. And that's, that's the context of that. But the idea is, is all of what happened in Israel, uh, and the Israelites, and what they went through is an example for the believers. The obvious one that many of you have heard, and if not, 
this is good because the truth of it is that we were enslaved in slavery to our sins. And they were enslaved in Egypt. And so when we think about, you know, uh, as we go through now Exodus and on through the rest, they were so tempted to go back because things were difficult when they were traveling to the promised land. And they, would, they wanted to go back to Egypt, but they forgot that they were slaves. You and I were saved from our sins. Whatever brought you here, whatever trouble you were in, whatever the Holy Spirit had been working in your life, you know, those uh, things that caused us to be in a position where we just had to cry out to God. Or maybe we just came to a church with some questions because we just couldn't find any answers anywhere else. And we find out that indeed our sin has made us slaves in the world. We didn't even know it, but because we thought our sins made us feel good. But you wake up the next morning and you got to go, it's, it, it's gone. You're not satisfied anymore. You got to go find it again. And you got to go find it. What are they, how's uh, Joe Foch puts it? He says, uh, you know, sin is a cruel master. You know, you, you got to serve somebody and that's Dylan, but you have to serve somebody. You're either going to serve yourself. Well, that's not serving the Lord. If you're serving yourself, you're, you're, you're really going after sin because what yourself wants is to, to the pleasures and the sin. And so Egypt was slavery for them. And our Egypt as believers, before we got saved, before we came out of the world, before we repented and turned away from our sin, had us in slavery. And that's one of the first and most important parallels. And as we go through, you know, where did we find ourselves when we first began to turn to God? What had the Holy Spirit worked in our lives to cause us to cry out to Jesus? He opens our eyes to that grievous bondage of whatever the addiction is or whatever the sin is or whatever the results of our sin were and we realize the damage we've caused to others and ourselves. Whatever that is, he opens our eyes to it and we realize we do not have the power in and of ourselves. Try as you may, whatever step program you want to try. You know, repent and turn to the Lord, step one. Step two, repeat step one and go back to square one to where you, you turn to the Lord, you look to the Lord for your strength to break free. And, you know, you look at how difficult it is to, to, and maybe you've tried that, I know that I did, I tried so hard in my own strength to stop doing the things that I couldn't stop doing. And it wasn't until I literally asked him and realized that I got to just back off from trying, not to just give myself over, but to ask him and say, Lord, and, and he does. He's faithful to us. Why wouldn't he? If we desire to be free, why wouldn't he set us free and give us that freedom if we want it? All we really do have to be doing on our end is to sincerely desire that repentance, to turn away from that sin that's got us in bondage. So we know sin has consequences and judgment and punishment before holy God. Now if we die in our sin, that judgment and those consequences remain, and the punishment is going to be eternal. You know, God brings us to that place where we know that we are unable to free ourselves, and we cry out to him. And we cry out to him because somebody told us about him. Somebody shared the gospel with us. Somebody said, you know, you're a sinner. You need a savior. They didn't just come and say, hey, Jesus will make you free and happy, and we got church, and we got a youth group, and we got a everything else that you can have fun and we'll, we'll go and do fun stuff at the park and everything else. No, you're a sinner and the Jesus that we have for you is the one who's going to completely free you of your sins, pay the price, and you get to live in eternity with, with, uh, with God, with, with all those that, that come to him. And it's so much better. We can tell them about what heaven's like. But they don't realize they need a savior unless they know they're a sinner. You have to say the Ten Commandments and ask them, have you ever told a lie? Have you ever stolen anything? If they say yes, well, that's it. They're sinners. So you're a thieving, lying, adulterer, and all. And they don't like hearing that about themselves. They think, well, no, I'm just doing what everybody else does. Well, it's not true. And, and at a certain point, the Holy Spirit, if we share the gospel with people, and that gospel beginning with why they need a Savior, because they're sinners, and what their sin, if they don't want to admit it, might be, and, and truly is, if they're willing to admit it, you know, and that is what then the Holy Spirit can convict them with, the fact that we've shared the word with them. 
And so, indeed, um, God is by his Holy Spirit working in our hearts, conviction of sin, and it comes by preaching the word. So don't be ashamed, don't be afraid, don't be embarrassed, don't be shy. You know, you are who you are. We all have different gifts. We may not all have the gift of evangelism, I've said many times, but we do, each one of us, have a testimony. And if somebody asks you what the hope is in you, you can tell them. That's all. It doesn't have to be out in the street corners with a bullhorn. You know, it might be for some of you. That might be your gift. Praise God. And we'll pray, continue to pray that he bears fruit through you like that. But sometimes it's just the people who run across. And sometimes it's got nothing to do with your family because your family, Bible says, they're probably going to turn on you. You know, we knew you when you were a little kid. And we know what you're like. You tell me now that you're not doing that anymore. Well, not by my own strength. You know, God did this in us. And so, so we understand then, because we've been convicted of our sins, that his dying on the cross for our sins, that perfect Lamb of God, that sacrifice in our place, because we were the ones that were supposed to die because of our sins. We were the ones that were supposed to have eternal punishment, eternal judgment before holy God. And we can tell them about that blessed, blessed hope that Jesus died in our place. And then by faith, we put our, our faith in him for salvation. We put our faith in him for those forgiveness of sins. And we put our faith in him trusting the good news of redemption by a God we can't even see, just like Moses, an invisible God we can't see, but who sent his only son that everybody saw back then. They were see, he was seen by all that he came through, all of Israel, and, and uh, words spread around, and that testimony by the Holy Spirit was spread by the apostles and then to the ends of the earth, and here we are today. So like Moses, um, we choose the reproach of Christ because we forsake the pleasures of the world for redemption and reconciliation so that we are reconciled back to a holy God. And we esteem all the riches of this world in the same way, you know, that Moses did as nothing compared to that which lies ahead for us. We have an inheritance, that inheritance in Jesus. We're co-heirs with him. And that's so glorious because, uh, indeed, we have such a bright future. Um, and, you know, it kind of winds up a little bit here towards the end of chapter 2, you know, how do we know he hears us? Well, it's not because of what we're saying and doing or how we're saying it or how we're doing it. It's because he's faithful. He hears us because we've called on him and he's made that promise and that covenant through Jesus. We know that he hears us because he said he would hear us, not because we've done anything in and of ourselves to, to, to warrant. But we do have to call out. We do have to cry out like they did. Um, because he's faithful to do what he said he would do. He swore by himself to Abraham because there was none greater to swear. Abraham was asleep when the torch and the smoke passed through. And God swore by himself because there's none greater to swear. It was a one-sided contract. God's going to do it all. And same thing for us. We just need to ask. And when he established the new covenant in Jesus, you know, it was accomplished by Jesus. Uh, you can't add anything that was done to the cross. And you guys know that. You know, what are you going to do to add to uh, that finished work where a holy and sinless and blameless and spotless Lamb of God died with all the judgment of sin on him when he didn't sin a bit, a, the least. And, and we are fully, completely sinners. And uh, born in sin because we had got it from the garden from when Adam and Eve fell. And so as such, you know, Jesus is the only one that could accomplish it. And so that's, again, the covenant's one-sided. All we need to do is ask. All we need to do is believe. All we need to do is trust him. All we need to do is repent, turn away from our sins. And that's in, a, that's in just acknowledging who he is and realizing that he came to die for our sins. Why would we want to walk in him any longer? Yeah, we might stumble. Yeah, we might make a mistake, but you're not going to go walking after it. You know, if you have troubles going someplace, well, you know, think about it before you go because you still have to get out there, turn the key in the car, and go drive down the road. 
somewhere along the line there, you've got to realize, wait a minute, I'm not, I'm not going here. That's not stumbling, that's walking after it. But if, you're, if you stumble, that's one thing. He, he picks us up and dusts us off. So um, the final things back in, in uh, Exodus 2, verses 24 and 25, it says God heard. And the idea there is something comes to him that has to be dealt with, and he hearkens to it. Whatever the situation, the need, the pain, the groaning, that's what that word heard means. You know, we might think about, oh, something came to my attention or I finally saw something that hadn't been coming. No, he saw, but this is now to be dealt with. It's something that we've got to do something with. And it says God remembered his covenant. Well, that word remember, you know, he sees the record of his pledge that he made and promises that he made to these descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob these sons of Israel. And that says he saw them. And that word saw means just not to catch your eye, but to look at, to consider, to ponder, to uh, you know, behold. And then says God on top of that took notice. And there's more, more to it. And it's, he took notice because he knows them. It's almost like when you see somebody you recognize, you, you, know, you know them. And you take notice. And that's that you know, these are they that he chose and he tied himself to by a covenant that he swore by his own name because there is none greater. He brought them to Egypt through a famine and now people don't often move out of their comfort zones unless something kind of comes along and pushes them out, but he brought them down to Egypt through a famine and God knew they would become slaves because he told Abraham they would become slaves. And that to come out of that would be a hard and a difficult thing for them to do. And it's true for us and the example for us that through Jesus, we also made our exodus out of the world, set free from our sins. And we have to this day that assurance by the seal of the Holy Spirit that he would indeed continue and keep us for that day because we're sealed for him, for that kingdom. What a glorious thing. It's hard to, to not want to just be quiet and think about it for a while. And um, so as we study through the history of Israel, we're going to find a lot of parallels if the Lord tarries um, to our own lives as believers. All the pleasures that the world offers us, it says James says we're drawn away by our own desires and tempted, you know, um, but we can't forget the slavery that that sin had us held down in. If nothing else, when you're dealing with temptation, you know, God will provide a, a way out. He says he would, so he will. Just ask him. But we need to remember that that sin that we're dabbling with put us in slavery. You've been set free. Why, why put yourself back, back in that slavery? Why put yourself back where you're ducking and dodging not wanting to know what the, you know, not wanting to be around believers, not wanting to hear the word because you know that you're still trying to get away with something. And so that's, that's just, allow the Lord, don't harden your heart, allow him by the Holy Spirit who works that conviction in us. And, uh, you know, we have such a bright future, we don't look back. And so we set our hearts and minds on the things above, and we put our hope in the kingdom that's to come. Amen. Let's pray. Thanks, Lord, for your love for us. And Words do fall short, and Lord, you see our hearts. Lord, we know how much you love us and care for us. And so, Father, please give us the peace and the rest and the joy that comes with just being able to ask, just being able to know that you hear us, and then to rest in, in that and what you're going to do in us. And Lord, pray for any that are struggling. I pray, Father, you'd give them strength. Give them that uh, conviction you promised as a loving Father to discipline us. And it doesn't seem pleasant, but it's because you love us. And so I pray if that be the need, and Lord, if it's a need where we just need comfort to, to rest in you, I pray you'd be working that in us as well. And I pray you'd use your word to help us uh, just walk with you and, and also to walk
in this world and be able to share who you are with a lost and dying world. And I pray again, those, those lives that, that you're going to bring before us, I pray already by your Holy Spirit, you'd be bringing conviction and, and bringing that need and that desire that uh, only you can fill that empty spot that they're trying to fill with all those other things. We just pray that you'd be working that in those people so that when we bring the word, that, um, that they would receive you and uh, there'd be great joy. So thank you so much for your word. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.